Hello, dear listener. It's Anya from Plastisphere. I've got a new guest episode to share with you to inspire your ears, mind, and heart. As you know, plastic pollution is not just a waste issue. It starts way before that, with the production of plastics from petrochemicals and our use of the products, shedding microplastics and chemicals. And in the end, a lot of it ends up as waste and pollution. But the problems plastics cause from production to disposal are not distributed equally. They impact some communities more than others, especially those already at a disadvantage and with little political power. One of the people fighting this environmental justice issue is Tisa Mafira. She's a lawyer and environmental activist from Jakarta, Indonesia, and one of the heroes of my favorite documentary film on the subject, called The Story of Plastic. The other day, I listened to a super insightful conversation with her on another podcast, which I'd like to share with you. The Indisposable podcast is a show produced by Upstream, a nonprofit based in the United States. Upstream helps businesses and communities shift away from single-use products towards a circular or reuse economy. Each year, they hold awards to recognize pioneers who develop alternatives to our throwaway society, the Reusies. The next Reusies award ceremony is on June 7, and you'll be able to watch it live online. Check out the links in the show notes. But first, from the Indisposable podcast, the conversation with Tisa Mafira. Hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome to the Indisposable podcast, produced by Upstream. I'm your host, Brooking Gatewood. And I'm your co-host, Matt Prindeville. Thanks for joining for another episode celebrating solutions to plastic pollution. Hey, what's up, Solutioneers? Welcome back to the Indisposable podcast. I'm your host, Matt Printerville, CEO and Chief Solutioneer at Upstream. And today, I'm I'm really beyond excited. I'm actually gushing a little bit to have one of my personal heroes, Tiza Mafira, on the show. Many of you may recognize Tiza as one of the Indonesian activists that was featured prominently in the award-winning documentary, The Story of Plastic. Uh, so Tiza is an attorney. She's a public policy expert. Uh, she specializes in environmental law, waste management, and climate change policy. And she's the co-founder and executive director of the Plastic Bag Diet Movement, which has raised awareness of the harms of single-use plastic and initiated the paid plastic bag policy that's enforced in supermarkets throughout Indonesia. In 2018, she was one of five people to receive a UN Ocean Hero Award for her work, and she's also the Associate Director at Climate Policy Initiative, a nonprofit think tank and advisory organization that's focused on public policy related to land use and energy transitions. So, Tiza, I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. I'm super excited to be here, too. Thank you for having me. So, Tiza, I, I want to start with how you became an environmental activist. I mean, is this... Was, have you always been one or was there a moment that shifted your perspective? I have absolutely not always been one. Uh, I was a corporate lawyer in my past life. I, I you know, dabbled and was interested in environmentalism uh, since I was a kid. And I actually did study environmental law in my uh, graduate and master's degree. But I didn't think of myself as somebody who would fight for the environment. You know, I was just interested in it as a subject and as a logical thing to learn for the survival of the human species. But I didn't think that environmental activism could be a thing, could be a profession, could be something that I actually have a career on. 
So I was a corporate lawyer and then I was like telling my bosses, you know, I'm, I, I studied environmental law. Do you have any things, uh, you know, cases uh, for me that I could work on? Uh, and they gave me these clients that were, you know, they were going to open up a palm oil um, plantation and they wanted to get an environmental license or they would want to like, oh, you know, uh, open a cement factory in a, in a former rice field and they wanted to get an environmental license. And I, I just ended up thinking, you know, this is kind of not how I thought this, this would be. This is not what I wanted to do. <laughs> no. <laughs> I want to stop this stuff from happening. I don't want to make it easier. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, but I think one of the most frustrating things about this, and this was six years as a, as a, as a corporate uh, attorney, by the way. One of the most frustrating things is that um, I'm limited to interpreting the law. And sometimes I feel... There's, there's more that could be legislated, more that could be regulated, but I can't do anything about it because my job is to just interpret it for my clients. Uh, and that's when I really started looking for outlets. You know, what can I do? What more could I do? Uh, and I guess that led me actually to this realization just one day that, you know, there is actually something that's missing. Uh, what about plastics? Nobody's regulating single-use plastics. Um, could I... Could I do something about that? I have some ideas. And I just started something here and there. I started this petition. I started talking to that person. And then, and then I just, you know, before, before I knew it, I was just fully immersed in, in, this, in this thing. And I, I just quit my job and never looked wow. back. Wow. Wow. I, I, I also want to start with the story of plastic. And I, and I you know, since you're talking about this journey, and I, I, love, I love this journey, because same thing, I, I too, did, I did not grow up as an environmentalist. This wasn't something that was anywhere near my thinking when I was a teenager. And it really wasn't until, you know, I got to, got to college and started getting exposed to a lot of ideas and also a lot of like, a lot of my friends in college were activists. And it really changed the whole trajectory of my life. And, you know, I remember... I remember another tra trajectory defining moment for me, which was going to the Philippines and, um, you know, this was part of the, the original founding for break free from plastic and, uh, our friend Froy, uh, taking all, all of us out to freedom Island where I had seen, you know, pictures of the rivers in, in the Philippines and in Indonesia and other parts of Southeast Asia. Uh, but it's one thing to see it in pictures. It's something else to see it in person. And it was just staggering the amount of, of, of pollution, you know, all up and down these beaches and all throughout the Bay. And, you know, you have this incredibly powerful moment in this film in the story of plastic. And I want to go to a moment that's early in the film where you're standing on a riverbank, you know, you're surrounded by plastic. And I remember you saying something like, you know, when people ask me why I'm working on plastic pollution, I want to take them here and I want to have them walk around for an hour and then ask me that question. Well, you've now taken millions of people <laughs> from around the world to that riverbank through the film. And I know you've been in other documentaries too. I mean, how do you think these documentaries have changed people's perspectives on plastic and how has it impacted your work? You know, our work um, is always based on uh, something we call the inside-outside strategy, mm. uh, which is that you need um, to be able to work um, from the inside, talking to the people you actually want to target this change, right? Which is, in our case, policymakers. Yep. So you want to be able to work 
kind of behind the scenes with policymakers, speak their language, uh, give them the technical documents they need. But it's not enough because you need to do this outside strategy, which is to create a movement, create awareness, create, create the, pressure. the pressure, exactly the pressure for the policymakers to actually say, okay, looks like we're getting public support if we release this legislation, right? And so the documentaries, um, they speak to people at large. They speak to um, millions of people in a very relatable way. And that is incredible for the movement. It just, the amount of awareness and the amount of people who uh, were previously not interested, uh, but now are interested, or previously a little bit interested, but now are super engaged and they understand the issue more because of these documentaries is amazing. And that's really helped us in terms of that outside strategy that I've, I've, I've told you. And, uh, you know, and ultimately, it all blends into one um, uh, you know, movement that has helped us push for uh, policies against single-use plastic. You know, one of the one of the most powerful impacts of the film is that it helped dismantle this industry narrative that plastic in the ocean is a problem that's caused by the people and the governments of Southeast Asia. And I, I feel like the film and, and the Break Free from Plastic brand audits, they've helped shine the light and show that it's US and European brands that have their plastic packaging littered throughout the region and that, you know, recycling imports from the global north have only added to the problem. You know, has has this film helped to change that narrative and the opportunity? and not just the film, but just the work, how the work has evolved. Do you feel that narrative has shifted and how has that impacted the opportunities for activists in Southeast Asia? You know, honestly, the film, I think, is a game changer. <laughs> I I went up to, to Steve Wilson, um, a good friend and the executive producer of the film, after the premiere, and I, I told him, Steve, this is a game changer <laughs> because I, yeah. I, I watched that for the first time. Right. And I felt, um, Oh, all this time I've been this little jigsaw puzzle. And now I see the complete puzzle, uh, after it's been completed. Um, and what I, what I said at the time after, after the premiere, what I thought and what I told my friends afterwards immediately is, um, listen, the narrative is going to shift after this. It's going to shift to the producers and the petrochemical industries. Uh, and it did, you know. Um, I, think that's, I think that's very important. And uh, you know, it's not like we still have a long way to go. There's still some resistance, but there has been a major shift in the way that um, the plastic problem has been discussed. It has always been discussed as um, a downstream issue, like the Southeast Asian countries are the source of leakage into uh, of plastic pollution into the ocean. But now the conversation is, where does the waste get designed? Where does that type of poor packaging get designed in the first place? Who authorized this system where in Europe, the, you can't find sachets, you can only buy shampoo in bottles. But in Asia, you, you can find sachets, like this poor multi-layer packaging that's too small and too uh, complicated to do anything with after its use. Um, and the conversation has shifted to, you know, how petrochemical companies have kept on churning uh, and, and supporting even more plastic produ production uh, in the last decade. Uh, and none of that is, is, is declining. 
even as we speak. Uh, and so I think it's it's a much more important and uh, it's a much more important conversation that really strikes at the heart of the matter. We're not at the point where we're already hammering at that root of the problem yet um, effectively, but we are hammering. <laughs> we are <laughs> hammering for sure. You know, I'm really curious to see what what has changed. I mean, the film is is almost four years old now, and I imagine that some things have changed. And you know, can you talk about maybe something that has been one of the big changes that you've seen in in, in either Indonesia or in the region? And then, you know, what are some things that you're you're really you know unhappy about where you haven't been able to make to get traction on thus far? Uh, at the time that the film was made, we had only managed to get one city to ban uh, single-use plastic bags in Indonesia. And today, we've managed to get more than 100 cities wow. to legislate bans on plastic bags. Um, it has been amazing. It's been like a domino effect. You know, like once we got the major cities in Indonesia, we got Jakarta and Bali, um, to ban plastic bags after years of, of working with them. Uh, after that, it was five cities. After five cities, it was 10. After 10, it was 50, you know. So it just kept snowballing. Um, and now we're at this point where, okay, now we need to move on to other single-use plastics because there's a lot of problematic plastics out there. And after we target these other single-use plastics, these cutleries, these, you know, cups and plates and sachets, uh, we have to make sure they don't get replaced with other single-use alternatives, right? Because some people like to think, oh, the problem is the plastics. No, not exactly. The problem is the single-use-ness, right, of the disposability yes. of these materials. <laughs> so this goes into your second point, what's, what's still yeah. frustrating and what still needs to be done. Well, the, the, the idea that the solution should be reused, that's the one that's still a challenge, you know, to get across. Um, and even now, I know we have to work fast because the longer that we keep, you know, this, this gap uh, between the banning and this, the, the right solution, the, the more that these false solutions can enter the market, right? We're already seeing false solutions enter the market, whether it's, you know, bioplastics or whether it's um, other types of material with environmental impact. First of all, 100%, Tisa. I mean, this is this is exactly one of the core messages that we're always reinforcing is that the problem isn't just single-use plastic. It's really the whole idea of single-use itself. And um, one of the things that we're most concerned about are the off-ramps for industry and policymakers, meaning that we know that we want the solution to be, you know, packaging reduction and building out and developing new reuse systems. But it's the easy path and the off-ramp to that is, oh, we're just going to move into bioplastics or compostables or, uh, you know, something else that 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 is kind of you're just trading one, one set of environmental issues for others, you know, or you know, this concept of, of, oh, we can still just recycle our way out of the problem and we're just going to do more recycling. And, and, you know, we always say recycling is important, but it's just nowhere near the impact of packaging reduction and, and building out these reuse systems. And also, in, and we know in, in, 
the case of Southeast Asia, that that more recycling can actually cause problems. And I want to talk a little bit about the shifts that have happened in in global recycling markets. You know, in the U.S., we've seen the impacts of China no longer taking low value recyclables. You know, are 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 more recyclables from the global north? Are they finding their way to Indonesia? And 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 if so, what kind of impact is that having? Absolutely, yes. More recyclables are finding their way into Indonesia. And that's discussed as well a little bit in the story of plastic film. And it's absolutely horrible. It's the the kind of plastic that you find is it's dirty, it's these poor, you know, multi-layered jumbled mess. Um, and cause sometimes you pick one up and it's like a brand that you've never heard of before because it comes from a foreign country. And that just, it is offensive, to be honest, right? To, to be a country that is on the receiving end of other countries' waste. Um, and It's like other, other countries that, are like treating Indonesia like a landfill. Like a... Where other countries are treating Indonesia like a landfill. And the worst part is that it's not like we can handle it anyways. It's not like yeah. we're actually recycling that stuff. Uh, that stuff cannot be recycled. There's a reason why it's being sent offshore, because if developed countries can't recycle it, what makes right. them think developing countries can recycle it, right? Right, right. Um, what so happens to it? It gets burnt, it gets picked apart by people living in poverty who are treating it as free fuel, uh, meaning that they just take it and they burn it sometimes for cooking. Um, oh my God. And you know, when you burn this type of plastic, don't, don't try this at home by the way, but it does create a thick black smoke that is uh, entirely full of toxins. And that hits the people who are least likely able to deal with the health consequences of that. So it is devastating. And not only can we not recycle our way out of this problem, but, you know, it just reinforces how there is no way you're just moving the problem across the globe to be somebody else's problem. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the the state of of policy around single-use plastics and also, you know, have the evolution of the plastic bag diet movement because, you know, you helped to create this organization and this movement which just caught fire, which you've just described with all these cities, you know, passing plastic bag uh, bans. And and now, you know, you said you're moving into other products and, and looking at, at how can we get more reuse going. You know, what's the appetite for, for poli- from policymakers in Southeast Asia to take more action on plastics? Uh, the appetites vary. I mean, that's why, to a certain extent, there's a strategy in, involved in us deciding to work with cities because uh, cities are more manageable in size, but also because we can pick which cities have the leaders that have the appetite for this, right? Uh, whereas if we're directly working with the national government, which we did try about, you know, a few years ago, um, uh, there's so many different interests and political uh, complications involved, and it was taking too long. And actually, the legislation in Indonesia, the national legislation in Indonesia, is saying, okay, we're going to ban uh, five types of single-use plastics nationally by 2030. 
So, you know, we're like, that, that is way too long. And it, it doesn't need to be that long because, you know, people are actually able to adapt quite quickly to single-use plastic bands. Uh, we don't have to wait for 2030. But what the law does allow um, is, and this is, this is actually a, a clear recognition of our work in cities, what the national law did allow was to say uh, city governments can legislate first before 2030 if they want. And so that's what we're holding on to. And, you know, that's the appetite, I guess, is, is just what's next after the appetite in the cities that have uh, uh, plastic bag bans in place. There's a number of things that they want to focus on. First of all, how can we make this uh, ban more effective as in like, how do we monitor its implementation, make sure it's, there's compliance? Number two is how do we expand this into other single-use plastics? The primary ones being cutleries, utensils, and online e-commerce plastics. That's like a big mm-hmm. thing. Everybody's yep. frustrated. Nobody knows what to do with it. Right, um, right. <laughs> and the third thing is how do we legislate more subjects? You know, now legislations are focusing on supermarkets. Um, the, the, the interesting thing in 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 a country like Indonesia and throughout Asia, really, is that you have informal markets as well. You have traditional markets, um, informal vendors, you know, street vendors, and they're not even registered. They, you know, the, these are people who they're licensed. They don't pay tax, you know, whatever. How do you legislate the informal sector? That's very, very difficult. So the the the, the next challenge is how do we phase out single-use plastics from the informal sector. Uh, that's, that's another major challenge, which we're also working on, by the way. We're working on plastic-free traditional markets. Um, but yeah, there's, there's so much work, uh, so exciting, but so challenging. What's the perception of, of people in, in Indonesia toward plastics and, and, and even plastic pollution? I know that here in the United States, I mean, we've got, you know, some incredible polling that has shown that this just uptick in the awareness and concern that people have around plastic pollution. I mean, it's, you know, a vast majority of the population hates plastic pollution and it kind of cuts across, you know, political uh, lines. It cuts across um, uh, economic and class lines and divides. And I'm just curious if, if that is, is also permeated um, the, the culture and the, and, the, and the people in Indonesia. It has. I mean, there's increased awareness and there's increased frustration at the amount of plastic, the frustration and guilt, right, uh, at the, the, the increased amount of plastic. And this is, this is very tangible after the pandemic, actually, because the pandemic did bring with it an onslaught of over-plastic, over-packaging over everything uh, yep. in the name of hygiene and sanitation. I just I don't know. understand. Um, it was a boon for the plastics industry and <laughs> it the really material was. industries. But I have to say, you know, awareness doesn't always lead to action. Yep. Especially when the system just keeps feeding it to you. Um, it's like it's like saying, I don't want it. And then they have a spoon, you know, they're spoon, spoon feeding you. Try it. It's free. And you say, I don't want it. Try it. It's free. I don't want it. Try it. It's free. And then, you know, you break down after a while. You get tired of saying, I don't want it. What needs to happen is, of course, we don't have to say, I don't want it. We should have a choice. We should have the empowerment to choose 
to have it when we actually feel we need it, right? But right now, that power is not in the consumer's hands. Um, and in Indonesia, that's absolutely the case. It's like, even if we tried, like if, even if we were ordering something from our food delivery app and we said, no plastic bag, please, no straw, please, it might still come with a plastic bag and a straw simply because the vendor is just too, you know, I don't, I don't have time to think about customized uh, orders, you know. So that's, that's kind of where we're at right now. These, you know, these norms that have been created for how consumable products get delivered, and it's really, it's really across the board, right? And the, the, these norms have been set up, uh, you know, it, to make it as as convenient and easy as possible for businesses and consumers to 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 get their hands on on products and then plow through it and then just have some garbage that just goes in a bin and then that's it, right? And this has all been said. I mean, we we've done some research into this and just looking at how did things evolve from earlier on in you know in human history where thrift and reuse were kind of the defining values, right? Like you wouldn't see people wasting uh, materials or products because that stuff was hard to come by, and 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 then this just glut of this kind of modern convenient consumer society. And I think one of the messages that we've really been trying to get out there is, you know, we want people to to live, you know, a modern lifestyle. We want people to be able to access the the things that they want and need um, in commerce, but we want them to do that in ways that don't generate all this waste. And and that that burden, like you said, it can't be on the consumer. Like if we're just sitting around trying to, you know, trying, you know, when you go to the grocery store and your only option is to buy the, the things that you want in plastic, um, that's not a choice, right? And also how do we make sustainability the default, right? So that it doesn't become a situation where affluent customers can choose the sustainable option and then, you know, poor people have to deal with the, all the all the plastic garbage, right? That's that's something that we, you know, we want to see happening here in the United States and, and also around the world. So I wonder if we could just move start moving into solutions here. And I'm, I want to hear what you're most excited about and what are some of the things that are starting to happen on the ground uh, in Indonesia and Southeast Asia? I'm most excited about reuse solutions. Uh, and to be honest, that thing that you just mentioned about giving sol- giving options, right, to consumers, um, that is the key. Sustainability should be visible, accessible, you know, mainstream, and it should not be niche at all. It shouldn't be a yeah. premium market. It should be... Um, it should be the norm. It should be so easy to get. You don't even talk about it. You know, um, it's not a green product. It's just a product. It should yep. be like that. Um, and what I think could happen, and what we're trying to achieve, is this idea that reuse can be convenient and modern, and uh, not costly. Um, the Thinking behind that is that, well, number one, reuse is familiar. We haven't always used the word reuse because in the past we always used reuse and it was just use, right? It was just, (laughs) exactly, it was just how we did things. It didn't occur to us to call it reuse, right? Um, I mean, in the in the Western world, you guys, you had uh, milk bottles, I think, right? Yep, um, that's right. Delivery, milk bottle deliveries. Similarly, uh, here, it wasn't milk. It was all kinds of things. It was, we would have herbal drinks. Um, 
just go by in front of our houses, being carried by ladies uh, in baskets, and they would have this specific uh, calling tune. So we'd know, oh, that's the herbal drink. And then we would have like these um, carts selling uh, noodles and meatballs, and they would serve them in these bowls. And, you know, wow, <laughs> bowls, <laughs> revolutionary. And they would wash right. it <laughs> yeah. right in front of our houses. Uh, and they would have this calling, this calling tune. So we, at our house, we could hear, oh, that's the meatball cart going by. So it was all these, like, these are childhood memories for me, which is not so long ago, by the way. Um, and today, it's like, they go by, but they use plastic. Why? And we're just, what we're campaigning is we're just saying we can bring back the reused traditions, the local wisdom that we've been so used to, and we can modernize it as well so that it fits our current lifestyle of shopping at the supermarket, shopping at e-commerce. And so the way to do that, of course, is to work towards having reuse solutions enter every store and every shelf. Um, it's a massive undertaking and we're nowhere near kind of being there uh, at that point yet, but we're, we're moving towards that point. And I think what it takes is a lot of uh, investment, industry investment into redesigning their entire supply chain, redesigning their packaging, redesigning their system logistics. Uh, and it also takes uh, standardization uh, in the industry. And it also takes a lot of policy campaigning. You know, my, I, I understand that, that uh, you're working with our friends, uh, Amy and Claudette over at, at PR3 and, yes. and, 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 and this exciting project that's happening uh, in Jakarta. Can you talk a little bit more ab about that and, and what the vision is for the project? Yes, absolutely. I met uh, Amy Larkin and it was like, we clicked immediately. Um, <laughs> and we love it. So I we only <laughs> I only use the word game changing to very few people, as you <laughs> now you know too. Because what I told Amy after she did her little her five minute pitch, I said, "Amy, this is game. This is going to be game changing." <laughs> <laughs> well, Stu, Stu and Amy are game game changing yes, people. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I I you know even even I when I heard the word reuse. I immediately thought, oh, okay, maybe refill, bulk stores, consumers bring their own packaging kind of thing. But when I spoke to Amy, what she said was standardization, right? Standardization in the way that you know how USB plugs can be used uh, in any kind of brand of laptop wherever you go in the entire world. And our phones can be used in Indonesia and then you fly and then you land in the US and you can still use your phone because there are standards that allow you to connect. And that should be the same with containers. That should be the same with packaging. That is the only way that you can get reused to become efficient and cost-effective. And I was like, wow, you're absolutely right. <laughs> um, yeah, yes, yes. So I said, okay. So the idea was, well, you've, you've had PR3 on this show as well, on this podcast yeah. as well. What they said was, we're working on standards. We only know whether it's going to work in the Western world. We don't want that. We also want these standards to work in the developing world as well. Um, could we do something both in, they were starting in Seattle at the time. Could we do something both in Seattle and Jakarta? 
and we can showcase that reuse standards are applicable. And if they're applicable in both of these cities, in both of these different situations, then why not imagine that they can be applicable globally in the context of a world that is, you know, working on a system of global trade? And I said yes immediately, basically. And um, <laughs> <laughs> that that just kind of, we, we, we fed off each other like, the plastic bag diet movement we're thinking of, uh, how do we get reuse to become more, more of the solution to replace single use? And then the work with PR3 just kind of widened our vision so much more uh, so that we're starting now to familiarize in Indonesia the idea that reuse can be so much more than just bringing your own tumbler and bringing your own tote bag when you're shopping. It can be... It can be as, as wide as, you know, you going to a supermarket and every single thing in that store is packaged in a reusable container and you can return it in any drop box around town and they can wash it in any washing facility scattered around the city. So that's, whew, I'm even getting super excited talking about it. <laughs> Me too. I, I, I get so excited talking about this and I, you know, one of the things that, that, I'm particularly excited about reuse is that to me, it, it, you know, you can solve the sachet problem very quickly, right? And if we could get more and more companies to look at providing their products through, you know, reuse services and selling small amounts of product to people, one of the, one of the uh, companies that, that we're really excited about is that is a company called Algrama, which I know you're, you're aware of. And, you know, that innovation of, of, really allowing people to buy as much product as they can afford or as much as they need. Um, but doing that through reuse and not through single serve. I mean, that's, that's like, again, another game changing idea and solution. And I've just thought like the, the concept itself is not patented, right? Anybody can go out, um, and create a business that, that is built around that kind of model. And it, it also just really struck me as something that could be done very small scale too. Like, so you mentioned the people with carts coming by in the streets and people purchasing the things that way. Like, of course that could be, you know, a reuse system. Let's talk about, you know, your, the vision that you have. I mean, you've been working on this stuff there for a long time. W one of the things that I think is so powerful about uh, your role in the story of plastic film is, you know, you're a young person, <laughs> right? You know, and, and you talk about the change in your lifetime, right? The shifting to plastic and how so much of this pollution has literally been created in your lifetime. And also, I've, I, I left that film with this idea of hope that you also kind of share that, well, we can, we can flip it back, right? You know, in this lifetime that I have, like, I want to work to not, not just like, you know, go back in time, but take the best of, of the past, like take these reuse refill systems from the past, modernize them for, for today's marketplace and today's consumer, and really shift the way that, that people consume uh, so that we can avoid all this pollution. Oh, I think a lot would be possible. I think what we're, our vision is what I like to call every store, every shelf. Whether you shop in the big glitzy supermarket or whether you shop in the simple uh, traditional vendors, you would be able to find a product uh, that is packaged in a container that you can return. The 
the way to achieve that, I think, well, it's nothing short of an entire systematic overhaul of the entire supply chain of consumer goods. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So we can't really skirt around that. Now, what I really want is for the industry players to spend a lot of time thinking about this. Um, Their operation, not the sustainability directors, by the way, (laughs) the (laughs) operations people, the supply chain, the logistics people, the product development people, because there's nothing they can't do. They can sell us things we don't need, right? Yep, that's right. For sure, they can figure this out. (laughs) Yeah, so um, I'm hoping that um, we'll gain traction once they're fully bought into the idea and they start investing a lot of time and resources into redesigning um, their supply chain. And we'll be there. We're ready. We're ready to support them with the enabling conditions, the policy that's needed to enable that, uh, the, the policies that's needed for them to, to, to feel comfortable that they won't be in an uncompetitive position if they do this, right? Because everybody else needs to do the, to do the same. That's our job, right? That's, that's, that's NGO, you know, uh, and, and government job. We can do that. But they also need to do their part. Yeah, 100%. And I, I'm so glad you alluded to the difference in, in perspectives from one side of, of these big companies to the other. And, you know, we work a lot with the sustainability officers for these companies, but of course, they're not the operations and, and, and supply chain people. Some of them have eyes into and work closely with them, but they are the change makers within their company. And many of them, I mean, what we found is that many of those people in the sustainability departments are actually really bought in on reuse and excited about reuse, but they don't have the information that they need to convince the people that make the real decisions up above them <laughs> and, and, and laterally to them in the operations and supply chain side in, in making these shifts. And, and a lot of it, like you said, it's going to require a massive amount of investment. And that is, you know, when to get big companies to invest that are very traditionally risk averse that have put you know decades uh and dollars into optimizing these single use uh supply chains and packaging uh supply chains it's a big challenge right for for these companies to make this shift and i think a big part of our job as ngos is i love you know the the description of the inside and outside strategy <clears throat> we have to keep the pressure on on the outside but we also have to help these change makers within these companies have the the information and the resources and the data and the tools they need to make the case and also to help them you know be able to collaborate because I, you know i don't know what the regulations are like in indonesia but here in the united states you know if one company that's a competitor collaborates with another on creating something that's good for the environment people can sue them for antitrust you know re- violations and regulations and so this is again why i think ngos and civil society are so important because we can create those kind of pre-competitive spaces and collaboration platforms for, for change. Um, because you can't have an individual company going it alone, right? Even the biggest consumer packaged goods companies, they, they can't do this on their own, right? They really need to be doing it together and, and we need to create these shared platforms. And so anyway, Tisa, I'm so excited about, you know, what you have accomplished and your work and your, your message and who you are as a person. I just, you know, it's been such a pleasure to hang out with you. Um, you know, I just want to let our listeners know where they can connect with you and follow what you're up to. I am very active on Instagram. So you can give me a, a follow on Instagram. It's Tiza Mafira. It's just my name, easy to find. Um, and from there, you could link to 
the plastic by diet movement's Instagram as well. And we just try to put out as much information out there as possible. Uh, and even in our, our website, we've actually done stuff like listing all of the 100 plus legislations um, of single use plastic bans uh, across Indonesia, for example, you know, things like that, because we want it to be accessible and people can replicate and duplicate it if they need to. And um, all of our policy where policy guidelines, uh, as well as our campaigns are diligently uh, recorded and put up on our website. If you guys want to see that one last thing. <laughs> yeah, please. Um, yeah. I also, there's, you mentioned I'm, I'm featured in another documentary and I'd just like to mention that. Yeah. A documentary, if I may. Um, there's another documentary I'm featured in, which is called Plastic Island. Um, it's in Indonesian, but it's, you know, don't worry, it's got subtitles. The big thing is that you can find it on Netflix. Um, oh, wow. And uh, it's, it's, it's a good one. It's a good one. You should check I can't, it out. <laughs> I'm going to go literally check it out tonight. I can't wait. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much again, Teaser, for coming on the show. And I look forward to our next conversation. Likewise, Matt. Thank you so much. And that's our show. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word. Subscribe to the Indisposable Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Add a review, talk us up. Nobody spreads a message like you. The Indisposable Podcast is brought to you by Upstream, sparking innovative solutions to plastic pollution, envisioning a world without it, and empowering businesses, communities, and individuals to imagine and co-create this future with us. You can find resources mentioned on today's episode as well as learn more about Upstream's work at www.upstreamsolutions.org. Follow us on social and join the movement. There's a better way than throwaway. <laughs>